So in this series, we've seen Israel called into a single-hearted faithfulness to God. But sometimes, just like us, they have a tendency to make some backup plans. What if God lets me down? Or what if God has a plan for my life that I don't like? Or what if I have a better plan? Or at the very least, some way to improve upon God's plan? They were told, weren't they, to drive out their enemies, but instead, we just heard, they married them. They were told to smash down the shrines, but we just heard they sacrificed in them instead. And from syncretism, that is the mingling of faiths, comes apostasy, that is the renunciation of faith, until God brings them back over and over and over again through grace and by grace alone. And here we are in chapter 2, verse 16, at about sort of 9 o'clock on the spiral, looking at the cusp of a rescue. Verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. This is every single story we've ever told. This is uh, Clint Eastwood in Pale Rider. This is the Magnificent Seven, Ride Again. Uh, it absolutely pains me to say it because he's not as good but it might even be John Wayne, I think. And I do risk dividing the church with these opinions, but there's no need to squabble or fight. Uh, we can just all agree Clint Eastwood is the best. The hero, amen, amen, preach it. Yeah, that's right. The hero comes along. He rides in. Uh, God's immutable property, not his character. That's too wishy-washy. That's modern liturgy. His immutable property, like a chemical property that cannot change, is to rescue and to forgive, to ride in. He always responds to our faithlessness with faithfulness, with grace. But the question today is, what if we reject the grace? Verse 17, they did not Listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods. Pretty strong language. Testing the theory at the extremes. They're selling their spiritual intimacy to another god. It is the strongest of words. Uh, then not only did they do this, they even bowed down to them, it says. And uh, do you see the trap here, by the way? They bowed down to them. These gods, with a little g, promise freedom, and yet within a sentence, suddenly we're bowing down to them. It gets even worse. Verse 17 continues. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. They failed to learn from their parents' mistakes. We're not quite sure why. Perhaps it was because the parents were too proud to show the children how they'd failed. Or perhaps it's uh, because the parents' faith was, in fact, not quite as strong as they like to believe it was. Maybe a bit of both. Children are not stupid. They're young. They don't know as much as grown-ups, but they're not stupid. And they have years to watch what their parents do and to figure out what their parents really believe. Or to be even more precise than that, who their parents worship. It is great to teach your children Bible facts. It's a good thing to do. But what they'll learn from most is not facts, it's feelings. They will observe over 18 years how your life is oriented. Or if you're from the UK, orientated. But it's the same thing. 
They will figure out what you strive for, what you live for, where you have placed your trust, wherein you find your security, what you love, what your heart desires. And if it turns out that we have a love for something else, that love that we have can overwhelm most of what we tell them about God. Here's the problem, verse 8. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity. That is a deep compassion uh, with a corresponding desire to comfort. That's what the little tiny word pity means in Hebrew. This is one of God's immutable properties. He is moved by pity. But, verse 19, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So how does the God of grace respond? Answer, even more grace. It's just that grace doesn't always look the way we think it should. Verse 20. So the anger of the Lord does not sound like grace, but it is. His immutable properties have not changed in this verse. Just because we've sinned doesn't change God's immutable properties. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, verse 21, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Why? Why does the God of grace allow bad things to befall these people? Uh, and why do I think these bad things are, in fact, just another example of his grace? Three reasons. And they kind of rhyme, so they must be true. Uh, three reasons, uh, to consign, to define, and to refine. And we'll take them very briefly in turn. Firstly, they've transgressed his covenant. So he consigns them, places them, in some sense, temporarily outside of it. Not forever, but he gives them a taste of life outside of the blessings and protection of the covenant. He says, you don't want my protection? Okay, you got it. Have at it. See what it looks like for you. You can, in fact, love someone and then allow them to experience the consequences of their sin. Even justice can be an act of grace. A second reason why he allows bad things to befall them, and that is to define them, to expose and diagnose what's really going on inside of their hearts. It simply reveals an awful lot about us when we suffer. A great deal. Uh, it says in verse two, uh, verse 22, rather, it was in order to test Israel. And this is repeated in chapter 3, verse 4. So that repetition gives you a sense of just how serious this testing was. This testing is a way to find out who they really love or what they really love. And uh, if they're really honest, these people, about the depth of their spiritual unfaithfulness, they will have a platform from which to get serious, repent, and then return. Many of us will find our faith revived, 
at rock bottom. Maybe we'll come to faith for the first time when our life has fallen to pieces. Leon Morris said, he's one of our favorite scholars, isn't he? Uh, it was a searching examination which the nation in the main failed to pass. That's very British for saying they got everything wrong. Uh, and yet uh, it was their failure, rock bottom, that allowed them to cry out for grace. Knowing the truth about ourselves is every bit as important as knowing the truth about God. Consign, define, but there's another reason why God momentarily allows evil to triumph, and even this, very strange though it sounds, weird, is an act of grace. Third, to refine, to train these people up for something even worse. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. It's odd. Chapter 3, verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Uh, only need not mean it was the only reason, but it certainly means it was the main reason why God allowed this crisis to befall them, and that is simply so they can learn how to fight. It is to place them on a, on a wartime footing, to toughen them up, to ready them for battle. For the rest of Israel's history, theirs will be a nation at war. They will find themselves squeezed between all the great forces and powers of the day. Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome and the iPhone. And uh, they'll be like, poink, right in the middle of all of this. All these cascading forces of the world around them crushing in on this little tiny body of people right in the middle. And they're going to say to themselves in every generation, what are we going to do? How are we going to cope? How are we going to deal with all of these forces that are against us? You know, in the previous generation, they dealt with this thing, but that's nothing compared to what we're going through. Every generation will say a thing like that. In the church today, right now, we can feel as though we were nothing compared to the clashing tides of the forces of the culture in which we have been placed. But opposition strengthens faith. The church will even face conflict from within. Over time, there will be civil war within Israel. They will turn on themselves. And then in the church, the history of the church, of course, is, is one not only of persecution, but also of sectarianism and schism as well. Now, we saw in our last series, 1 Corinthians series, that sometimes divisions within the church are necessary in order to prove who is genuine. If someone or somebody is way off, then there needs to be a division. But honestly, most church splits are completely stupid. They can be over the tiniest of things, can't they? I didn't get my way, so I'm going to go my way. Split, split, split. Kat just got back from Texas, a reunion of the youth group, and uh, she told me a story from Texas of, of two churches from her childhood uh, in, uh, in that town that split. And uh, she was talking to all of her friends about it because some of them had grown up uh, in those churches, and no one could really remember the cause. So it wasn't a big one, 
Right? It wasn't like someone denied Christ or tore up a Bible or something. They might have fallen out over the color of the carpet, for all I know. A generation later, a generation after the split, one of the pastors was driving past the old church, and on a whim, he went in, found the pastor of that church, and said, listen, I wonder if we could ever get back together again. And the other pastor said, you won't believe this, but God has placed the very same thing on my heart as well. So they took their ideas to the congregations. Everyone loved the idea, except for two elders. The last holdouts from that generation. One in each church. And their votes were enough to prevent this reconciliation from happening and to keep the dispute alive. Then came the crisis of COVID. One church has now closed. The other is badly maimed. That is what it looks like to be wise in your own eyes. It looks like death. And every generation will face the exact same choice. Will I experience the grace of God the easy way or the hard way or reject it altogether because I believe I have a better way? Amen.